For you now. These are great words you just sung, aren't they? It's a personal Here is Jesus, our Savior, our friend, our deliverer, our King of Kings. He makes us want to fall at his feet and worship him, live for him, to change the world for him. Say sincerely with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Then we go home, fall into bed, and let our minds wander. We follow our great enough scenarios where we are at the center. Peter's after for that brilliant job we did, that brilliant conversation we had. The authority matters of family, friends, bosses, colleagues, even strangers, followers. And that's just Sunday night. Monday morning events. And our deaths, we sigh and dream of that perfect job with a clear combination of high remuneration and total satisfaction. That perfect talk which will deliver us from our tragedy. At lunch, we alternate between hope and despair over the state of our nation. We ask of every writing political stuff, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we wait for another? Are you the one to save this nation? Even in dawns, and we feel like we're letting the side down if we don't put in those extra hours. We are needed here. Actually, we are needed at the places. Work, home, church. Who do these? And that's just one day. The weeks that I even started. It's really, really, really hard, isn't it? The words we sing on Sunday feel so out of sync on Monday. We know that she just should be the one who treasure her all. But there's so many other riches on offer. It's hard not to get distracted. I know it's certainly true of me. One moment I'm 
feeling of dangerous of death. The next, I'm looking out for myself. Jesus. We know he's important. But compared to everything else, he's used like yesterday's fashion. Very or fear, very. Today we come to the heart of Matthew's Gospel in chapters 26 to 28. All throughout Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom. The Sermon on uh, on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7 is all about life and the kingdom. In chapter 13, Jesus tells us parables about the nature of the kingdom. In chapter 18, we discover that relationships amongst kingdom people should look like. And in the chapters immediately before our passage today, chapters 24 to 25, we again have a hush in the proceedings. Jesus' disciples sit at his feet, listening attentively to their master's words. He has been painting a picture of cosmic upheaval at the end of the age in Matthew 24. The sun will be nothing. The moon will not be the sun. The star will fall from heaven. The trumpet will sound. And what happens? The king will gather his people from all four corners of the earth. The king is returning in glory, and it will be unmistakable. His kingdom room is complete. This is where all of history is heading towards. It's a time of complete restoration. And it will also be a time of judgment. We return a couple of pages back to Matthew 24, verse 38 to 41. And I'll read. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware, until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the meal. One will be taken and one so, in chapter 25, Jesus, by a few parables, calls on his disciples to be watchful. Be prepared, he says. Be faithful. Be persevering. Make sure that you're on the side of the king. But now, here in chapter 26, the time for teaching is over. The time for action is here. Verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these things, everything essential has been said. Now, if Matthew had a soundtrack, then it's very on a bit ominous in the production. There's a famous part in C.S. Lewis' book, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wild, where one of the characters whispers, Aslan. All of a sudden, there's a heightened sense of expectancy. And there's a similar sense here. Jesus is on the move. 
And he goes on to just said in chapter 24 to 25, so the king is going to be a righteousness, then a chosen, the Messiah. So let's get on with it. What do you say, Jesus? Verse 2. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Amen, amen, amen. What? This is the name of us. Jesus has already predicted the death before. For example, in Matthew 20, verse 17 to 19. But it's still a shock to the system. There's now an immediacy to it. In two days, two days, Jesus is going to die. Suddenly, Jesus doesn't look so attractive anymore. Suddenly, it's yesterday's fashion. Faded. Second. But this is Zachary's genius. We are about to journey with him on the way to Jesus' death. But he wants to make sure that we realize one big thing from the very beginning. Don't be fooled. Jesus' value hasn't dropped. On the contrary, there's no treasure by Jesus. Nothing else is even measure up. So, don't give him up for lesser things. And to make his point, he gets into the director's chair and gives us this vivid scene in chapter 26, verse 3 to 16. It's going to zoom in on character after character, all the time asking, what is it that they treasure most? And at the end, he wants to show us how amazing Jesus really is, and why would you treasure anything? So, first thing, the camera zooms in, on the chief priests and the elders of the people. That's true. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and talked together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But, they said, not bringing the peace, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, the Romans could apparently they could change who they wanted Caiaphas when they were alive. But Caiaphas hung on for 18 years, indicating that he was something of a master manipulator. At any rate, he's a guy used to be in control. And he's at the forefront of this plot to kill Jesus. Jesus' agenda doesn't match his agenda, so Jesus has to go. There they are, a group of these powerful people, weeping in the smoke-filled bathrooms of the palace, scheming on the details. Arresting Jesus away from the clouds is a sound strategy. Seizing Jesus during the peace will probably only incite a riot, and no PR campaign will be successful at this stage. So they think that we can show. But of course, they are. Unknown to them, Jesus is expecting to go in his death. This thought is of no surprise to him. 
So they come in the relief. And one point that they have achieved peace, desperately trying to work out time to get Jesus outside possible time. Uh, and yeah, uh, they have Jesus, that's the fact we come in the disciples. Oh, it's possible time. And by the way, this is when I'm going to die. Yeah, so that comes past. The chief priest wanted to avoid an uproar, the spy, afraid that the people would stop them from seeing Jesus. But guess what? The uproar happens anyway. Except that instead of people crying for Jesus to be free, they're shouting for him to be crucified. Jesus is heading for the cross, and nothing will stand in his way. No, it's the third time we're talking of others' fear. Way back in chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel, we find someone else who wanted to kill Jesus, and that, of course, became Herod. There, the wise men come before Herod, but they show no interest in the king before them. All they want to know is, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So he conspired to get rid of his baby. But again, this king is no match for the king of kings. The wise men, after meeting Jesus, are born to go back to heaven. Meanwhile, baby Jesus is safe in Egypt. As the king, Herod looks like he's the one in control. But he is a lady. He can't even control the timing of his death when it's safe for baby Jesus to return. But what about this? This is a bit much to suggest that all control tweets are we? But often, our desire for control is more evident in commonplace circumstances. Perhaps we obsess over every detail of our children's future. Every step we carefully plan, get them to the right school, micromanage their diet, fill up their time with extracurricular activities. And if it really is the end of the world if our child didn't get into the very top school or can't take a piano to save his life. That might reveal something of where our treasure lies. Or look at the way we want everybody to come to our point of view. And so we end up leaving out just a few details which might weaken our case. Or we talk ourselves up just a little bit more. We could even come up with all this. As with one, an unbelieving friend, to be efficient so much that I tried every single trick in the book. But the truth is, we are not in control. We can't change hearts, and we often can't change our circumstances. To pretend otherwise is to be doing ourselves. But, thankfully, we can trust the one who is in control, Jesus. Jesus, the master teacher. Jesus, 
we did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus, who was so willing to go to the cross for our salvation that nothing would stand in his way. Secondly, the camera now focuses on the women and the disciples. That's in verses 6 to 8. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster glass of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? The sea now shifts to a dramatic subject. This is the focal point. Jesus and his friends are resting at the disciples' place, uh, at the friends' place, uh, Out comes this woman. Then she does something which makes everybody's jaw drop to the floor. Now, I discovered that the most expensive perfume in the world is something called Clive Christian's Imperial Majesty. It's 250,000 US dollars. It's contained in a 17 pounds perfume bottle. It has an 18 carat gold color and it has a 5 carat diamond. And 25 bottles are made annually. This woman takes a equivalent of that and pours it all out on Jesus. And it's not like you can pour all that back to the bottle on you. Or put it another way it's your car, your laptop, your hi fi system, your iPhone, iPad, iWhatever, all passed away in an instant. So once the disciples pick up their jobs, they are feeling quite indignant. How can you run? You can sympathize. Now, uh, I've been out with friends who blow quite a bit of cash in just one evening on entertainment, and sometimes we just can't help but wonder. Surely all that money can go to somewhere better. There must be thousands of worthy causes for which that money could be spent. So, uh, verses 8 to 9, the disciples said, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. What about the starving? What about all the orphanages? What about all those affected? by natural disaster. In any case, isn't Jesus for the poor? The, the disciples have a point. You really feel like you're banging your head against the wall when you see what that woman had just done with all that money could have come. And so far, all our attention has been concentrated on the woman and the disciples. But now, enter Jesus. Let's count. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. With just two sentences, Jesus radically challenges our perspective. He considered the woman unbalanced in her act of wastefulness. Jesus considers the woman unrestrained in her act. The disciples failed to appreciate what she was really doing. We know already that Jesus is going to this death. He said so. 
the woman believes in Jesus and rest. For her, this is probably the last opportunity to be with him. And so she pours out her everything in an especially physical way. Now, we can't be sure whether she saw her back explicitly as preparing Jesus for his death, but that's how she was interpreted in verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Now, executed criminals don't usually get much attention. This is love. And you can't really express love in purely economic terms, can you? During Valentine's Day last week, you think lovers were busy picking the body things for their beloved? No! They were busy getting ripped off by car companies and toys. The woman went to the treasure box, but her ends are kept, and emerged with a precious and lasting sauce for Jesus. She knew who Jesus was, and she loved him. Now, does that mean that the disciples got it completely wrong? Should we show no concern for the poor? At first glance, it sounds like it, verse 11. For you always have the poor with me, but you will not always have me. How could he say this? But actually, Jesus is just quoting from Deuteronomy 15, verse 11. The first half of that chapter is all about caring for the poor. What Jesus is getting at is simply a matter priorities. The disciples' objection is not evil. It simply betrays a lack of understanding. Remember, who is Jesus? He is the King of Kings, the Messiah, and is about to die. Not in vain, but for us. And in fact, his death acts as the ultimate spur for us to care for others. If we love Jesus more, we will love the poor. Paul expresses this truth well in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And uh, I'm going to read uh, chapter 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, but his poverty might become rich. Therefore, because of his grace, of this grace, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 to 7, the Macedonian church, in spite of their persecutions and uh, sufferings, they were able to give joyfully and generously. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5, it says of the Macedonian church, they gave themselves first to the Lord. It's God and His grace is the thing you love most in this world. Then you give your money away to ministry and charity to the poor in astonishing amounts. Now the spotlight shares on the words. What is your heart's treasure? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there in your heart will be also. Jesus wants us to know that nothing is more valuable, more worthwhile 
than himself. And he calls on us search our hearts. More often than not, like the disciples, the things we value are not necessarily bad things. It's perfectly valid to desire the best for our children, to enjoy our homes, to cherish a particular relationship. It's right to think about social justice, about global warming, about cultural preservation. God cares about those things too. But we want those things at all costs. What if we pray and work for something? But we don't get it. If we find ourselves in deep despair, or we find ourselves incredibly angry, we might discover where our treasure is actually buried. Matthew invites us to consider the example of the woman instead. Her attachment to Jesus meant that her attachment to other things were loosened. Jesus is worth it. Is the Lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. Now, Matthew doesn't just leave it there, so he's provided us with a positive example in the woman, and now he goes on to provide a negative example. So now, thirdly, the camera zooms in on Jesus, verses 14 to 16. Then, one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they gave him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. How did you trust Judas with this woman? It's 
fulfill the wages of the faithful chapter in Zachariah. Now, in Zachariah 11, verse 4 to 14, which is the book of Zachariah, we have read, the shepherd for the flock is a marker for soccer, is God, played symbolically by the shepherd, by the flock of The flock is in such a bad way because their leaders, their own shepherds, have exploited them. Many in the flock themselves are no better. Neighbor or perhaps neighbor. In effect, they deserve the leaders they have. Therefore, God rejects them. The relationship between God and His people is profoundly broken. And in Zechariah 11 verse 12, they give the shepherd how much they think it's worth. But God wants to be able to give up. He says that he will act to restore his people. He will be their shepherd. And that's what we find in Zechariah chapter 10. So verse 6. I will strengthen. I will save. Verse 7. I will bring them back. I have compassion on them. Verse 8. I have redeemed them. Verse 10. I will bring them home. And he does, in the person of Jesus. With growing horror, we realize that Judas and the chief priests are repeating their forefathers' mistakes. Have treated the pearl of great price. For pebbles, being like Judas is a great mistake. Now, what pebbles might we be holding in our hands today? Comfort, luxury, wealth, security. The world defines this to be pebbles. They are the marks of success. But Jesus will find success for us. His marks of success, the nail stars on his hands and feet. It is in death that Jesus brings forth life. Those who lose their life for him will find it. When we know Jesus as that perfect pearl, everything else becomes faded, tragic. We see it when someone chooses to move to a lower paying job or to a less affluent neighborhood for the sake of the gospel. And we see it when someone chooses to stay instead of moving uh, to greener pastures for the sake of his brothers and sisters in Christ. They hung to the poor, not the palace. Ultimately, there's one person that you want us to focus on. And I hope it's crystal clear who that is. Jesus is the treasure, not just of this passage, not just of, of Matthew, but the whole Bible. It's all about him. And he's through the gospel. The good news is all about. The worst thing that could happen today is if someone walked out here feeling even more guilty because they haven't treasured Jesus as they ought to. 